The Secret Church podcast is a resource from Radical.net. For The Secret Church 8 study guide and other resources that go along with this audio, visit Radical.net slash SC8. This is Secret Church 8, episode 10. All right, now, flowing from those applications. Okay, so what does this mean? Like, how do we live this out? Ten applications. Before we get to those, I'll set the stage. Two foundations. God gives objective truth in Scripture. So we've seen Scripture tonight. We've seen truths in Scripture. But the challenge is, how to apply those to our lives is, is, is difficult. And this is where God gives subjective guidance through the Spirit. Through the Spirit. Objective truth in Scripture, subjective guidance through the Spirit. And so God has put His Spirit inside of us to help us know how to do this. We've got to be aware we are self-rationalizing, self-justifying people. And we need the Spirit of God to take His Word, stay close to His Word, and show us what this looks like in action. Now, as we do that, four exhortations. Number one, do not compare. The life of Christ is our standard. What I mean by that is examine your own life more than you examine the lives of others. There's a dangerous tendency in this whole picture to say, well, there's a healthy way to look toward others. Don't miss this. There's a healthy way. There's a healthy way we're supposed to encourage one another with our examples in the church. And so we're supposed to spur one another on with our examples. But if we're not careful, we can start measuring our spirituality by whether or not we've sold more or less. We've sacrificed more or less. less. We've spent more or less. We've got to be very, very careful. The life of Christ is our standard. Second, do not despair. The presence of Christ is our hope. It can be overwhelming. You can think, ah, I'm never going to get on top of this. But brothers and sisters, you are not in this thing alone, and you don't have to figure it out on your own. God is faithful, and he will do it. He'll do it. Let him do it. And it's intended. We don't have easy answers to some of the questions we have for a reason. It's because God has designed this whole process that we might know him more. And the, the goal is not just to get answers to our questions. The goal is to know God. Don't despair. Christ is our hope. Avoid apathy saying, I just, I'm just going to give up. There's so much, I don't even know where to start. The joy of Christ is our possession. Run after Christ and let him change you and transform you. And don't, don't get apathetic. Avoid lethargy. The glory of Christ is our goal. We can walk away from all this and say, I'm just not ready to deal with these things. Don't do that. The glory of Christ is worth it. It's, it's worth the battle. And it is a battle. Scripture talks about the battle, the war, the struggle, the fight. So let's fight it. Ten applications. Here we go. Number one, submit to Christ. This is key. It's, I hope, a given, but it's huge. We need Christ. And I put Matthew 9, 35 through 38 in here. We need to see what he sees. One of the problems we wrestle with, why we've got this slum on the stage up here, is, is one little reminder for us at Brook Hills. We've got to see the world differently. The world does not look like right at what's right in front of us. We need to see the need in the world, feel what he feels, to be moved with compassion. We need to be shaken by realities in the world, realize what he knows. When it comes to lostness, the whole picture of judgment, harvest in Matthew 9, the harvest is plentiful. Harvest was a metaphor for judgment. Jesus knew judgment is real from his Father. 
We need to realize eternal realities are at stake here. Pray what he commands. God raised us up. God raised harvesters up to do something. We need to do what he says. Start with submitting to Christ. Only Christ can produce the fruit of, of Scripture and obedience in us. Second, commit to the church. Here's the comforting reality. We are not alone. We are to, to learn from each other, to live for each other. We're on a mission. We're on a mission, a spiritual mission, preaching good news with social ramifications, addressing deep needs. That's what we're all doing together. And we help one another in this process. We are not building a kingdom for us on earth. So let's stop building empires and kingdoms and calling them houses of worship. It's Old Testament, not New Testament. Let's spend our money advancing the kingdom of God on earth. The local church is the means by which the kingdom of God is going to go to the ends of the earth. So don't try to do any of this lone ranger. That would miss the point. Submit to Christ, commit to the church. Third, work wisely. As long as you are able, work hard. Don't be lazy. That would miss the point of Scripture. And as long as you are able, this will sound weird, but gain wealth. Like make money. And if you can work 20 hours and make enough to cover you, then don't stop at 20 hours. Work 40 hours and make enough for, for others too. Like the whole point of tonight is not to say, well, making money is bad. No, like make a lot of money. Get a lot of money. So you give it away for the glory of Christ. So make money, gain wealth. Note, the Bible never encourages or validates retirement. You don't see it. You don't see it. We do not save up money for a life spent on luxury. We might save up money for a life spent on ministry. If your motive is to, to be able to work for God or the church, for, the, for the church, for the poor, for the lost, without pay or compensation, okay, now that has biblical worth. Or if you're not able to work, then obviously that, that, that challenges that. But, but as long as God has us here, he has work for us to do, according to Scripture. Our hope is not in our retirement, brothers and sisters. Our hope is in Christ's return. As long as we're here, the question is, how can my life be best spent for his purposes here? Submit to Christ, commit to the church, work wisely, live simply. We talked about this. God gives enough for us. So identify your enough. Wesley said, Christians should give away all but the plain necessities of life. That is plain, wholesome food, clean clothes, and enough to carry on one's business. Any Christian who takes for himself anything more than the plain necessities of life lives in an open, habitual denial of the Lord. He has gained both riches and hellfire. Well, tell us what you really think, bro. So, here's the deal. What Wesley did, I talked about this some at Brook Hills before. He, he limited, he put a cap on his lifestyle. He said, I need 28 pounds to live on is what, what it was for him. And so one year he made 30 pounds. He lived on 28 and gave two away. Next year he made like 50 pounds. So he lived on 28 and gave 22 away. And it, his inc income kept increasing. And he still lived at this level right here. What if we started to believe that a 50 or 75 or $100,000 salary does not necessitate a 50 or 75 $100,000 lifestyle? What if God gives us more, not so that we can get more, but so that we can give more? That's exactly what we've seen all over Scripture. So identify your enough. Identify your enough. How do you do that? Start by prioritizing necessities. It's 1 Timothy 6, food and clothing. And minimize luxuries. Now, and I, I want to put minimize here as a key word. 
luxuries, minimize luxuries, because the reality is as long as we're living in this culture, guys, we're going to have luxuries. Like a, a bed we sleep on tonight is a luxury. We don't have to have a bed. A spoon or a fork we eat with is a luxury. We don't have to have that. So our lives are going to be filled with luxuries as long as we're here. So I don't want to assume that we can get rid of every luxury and just live on necessity. But we need to minimize them. We need to minimize them. Ask questions. What possessions do I have that need to be shared? What possessions do I have that need to be sold? What possessions, possessions that I, do I have that need to be sacrificed? We need to ask those questions. Identify your enough. And then realize that God gives excess for others. So isolate your excess. As you live simply, put a cap on your lifestyle, First Timothy 6 kind of cap, and then start believing that God has given us extra, not so that we can have more. He's given us extra so that we can give more. What if he's given you excess, not that so you can have membership for luxury golf? What if he's given you more so that you can translate the scriptures into a language that doesn't have it? And, and we could go on and on with things in my life, things in all of our lives. I don't want to pick on anything in particular, but the reality is we've got to isolate that excess and figure out then how to give it. Beware rationalization. We can justify anything and we can spiritualize anything. Well, things aren't that bad. We'll talk about that in a second. Be careful. We can spiritualize anything. Beware confusion. We do this not because things are bad. Things are good. It's not, it's not that we need to downsize a house because a house is bad. And so we need to downsize a house because we can free up this much money and people are in need. That's why we do it because we have brothers and sisters who are starving or people who haven't heard the gospel. And so we free up resources, excess, we give away so that we can meet need. Not because things are bad. As long as we ask, well, is that bad? Well, no, it's not bad. Wealth and possessions, are, that, if that's our standard, we're never going to get anywhere in this process. General guidelines, spend intentionally. These four questions that I've got listed there are questions that Wesley would ask when it comes to spending money. Spend intentionally. Celebrate occasionally. Remember, extravagance is not always bad. I don't think it's bad to treat my wife on occasion or use resources for, my, uh, to, for some good, godly kind of celebration. Extravagance is the exception, though, not the norm. Celebrate occasionally and then speak accurately. Here's what I mean by that. Speak accurately. Uh, we need to eliminate. I, I believe we need to eliminate vocabulary from our mouths like, I'm starving. It's not healthy because we make light of realities that, that are not in us. Or I, I need to go get this. I need this. We, we need to be careful with the way we use the word need. This will help us to retrain our thinking to be less. I mean, we, we don't need most of the stuff that we say we need. Live simply. Then when we live simply, give sacrificially. I want to ask this initial question. Are you giving less than your ability according to your ability or beyond your ability? Less than your ability according to your ability or beyond your ability? 
C.S. Lewis. I love what he said. I do not believe one can settle how much he ought to give. We ought to give. I'm afraid the only safe rule is to give more than we can spare. In other words, if our expenditure on comforts, luxuries, amusements, etc., is up to the standard common among those with the same income as our own, we are probably giving away too little. If our charities do not at all pinch or hamper us, I should say they are too small. There ought to be things which we should like to do and cannot do because our charitable expenditure excludes them. Sacrificial giving is generous. Sacrificial giving is consistent. 1 Corinthians chapter 16, give consistently. I would encourage you to give consistently. That helps feed, helps fuel this giving mentality that undercuts materialism. Sacrificial giving is voluntary. It's the overflow of Christ in you. Sacrificial giving is excellent. 2 Corinthians 8, 7 says, excel in the grace of giving. Sacrificial giving is a skill, like practice it and get good at it. Sacrificial giving is cheerful. People say, well, I can't give cheerfully, so I don't give. Well, that's not the proper response. Like, get happy then <laughs> and give. Sacrificial giving is worshipful. Giving is worship, prayer, singing, and giving are worship. Sacrificial giving is proportionate. What I mean by that is the, the, the whole widow's might picture. If somebody makes $10 million a year and gives away $9 million, have they given sacrificially? Settling to live on a mere million. Like, no. I mean, yes, that's an extravagant gift, and praise God for that extravagant gift. But this is often, it's often how we look at giving. Well, if it's a big gift, then it must be sacrificial. Not, not necessarily. And there's some people who, who might, might give 25 or $250 that are giving far more sacrificially than the person who gave $9 million away. So sacrificial giving is proportionate. Sacrificial giving is quiet and motive mainly here. doesn't mean we can't ever talk about giving, but... We do not talk about giving to draw attention to ourselves, to exalt ourselves. Sacrificial giving is honest. I do not recommend pulling an Ananias and Sapphira in the church. Sacrificial giving is purposeful. And this is important. When we give, we want to give intentionally. Give in ways that are gospel-centered. Give in ways that are gospel-centered. We want to preach the good news. Give in ways that are church-focused. A lot of ways we give can bypass the agent that God has promised to bless for the advancement of the Great Commission. Give to people, churches, organizations with integrity, reliability, sustainability. These are just practical things. Give in ways that promote relational ministry. Give in ways that you can connect with, not keep an arm's length of distance from. And then given ways that you can connect with through personal ministry. What we want to avoid is writing checks so that we don't have to do the ministry ourselves. Given ways that you can connect with through personal ministry. One final question. What would happen if we stopped asking how much we could spare and starting asking how much it would take? What if God wanted to reach the unreached peoples of the world? Maybe he would give his people unprecedented wealth that would enable the accomplishment of that. Is that not exactly what he has done? We have it, brothers and sisters. In our churches, we most definitely have it. We have the resources it takes to get the gospel to the ends of the earth. We have it. They're bound up in small things and big things, small possessions and second houses and luxurious this and that, like we've got it. 
question is, will we use it? Next, number six, probably the most controversial in this whole thing, tithe willingly. So what about the tithe? There is no command to tithe under the new covenant. Closest thing we have is those statements from Jesus that kind of imply it, but they, no command. Here's what we do see, though. And we don't see it anywhere else. 2 Corinthians 8 9, 1 Timothy 6, these passages about giving, they don't mention the tithe at all. It's conspicuously absent. Instead, though, we do see that every New Testament example of giving goes beyond the tithe. Goes beyond the tithe. Much grace was upon them all, Acts chapter 4, and they were giving extravagantly. Grace giving in the New Testament involves greater sacrifice than giving in the Old Testament, not less. So here's the thing. Many people have concluded, and rightly so, based on the fact that there's no command in the New Covenant to tithe, that tithing is irrelevant and that we are grace givers now. Well, the reality is they were doing some grace giving back in the Old Testament too. And just because it's not commanded does not mean that we throw it out the window necessarily. And I'll be honest, I've, 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 I've through the process of studying this whole picture, have adjusted some of my thoughts on this issue right here. Because I believe tithing, when you look at the whole of Scripture, is a helpful guideline, not a legalistic mandate. People always say tithing is legalistic. Well, prayer can be legalistic too. Studying the Bible can be legalistic. I am doing this to earn favor before God. That doesn't mean we don't study the Bible. But we can turn anything that is good into legalism if we use it with wrong motives. It doesn't make them Ill- Ill- illegitimate. But here's the deal. Tithing in the Old Testament was used to teach the people of God how to look at their first and their best as belonging to God. In the New Testament, Jesus doesn't shoot it down. In fact, he implies that they would continue to do it. And then you look at the early church and there was evidence that they were tithing. I believe tithing makes sense to start your giving with 10% to your church as a floor. Here's the deal. I don't think there's any way an Old Testament, a New Testament believer under grace should give less than an Old Testament believer under the law. That would make no sense. So if we're going to throw tithing out the window, then let's, let's, let's make sure we're doing it way above 10% then. Tithing is a starting point, a floor of giving. And then start that giving with 10% and then expand your giving with greater percentages according to your excess. There's no ceiling on giving here. And that's where, yes, yeah, let grace take control. But if we're using grace giving to give as an excuse to give less, we're missing the whole point of giving. So tithing provides a good training tool. Five reasons why tithing is a helpful guideline. Number one, tithing honors a biblical principle. Old Testament obviously describes it. Jesus endorses it. New Testament church practices it. I would add to after that. Second, tithing reinforces the truth of God's ownership. When we take a tenth off the top of anything we receive, we affirm everything we've talked about tonight with God's ownership. That's a good reminder for us. Third, tithing reminds us of the accountability in our stewardship. In order to give the tithe, you've got to deal with desires in your heart that would cause you not to want to give that tithe. Tithing, fourth, helps us in the constant battle with materialism. The antidote to materialism is giving. So where there's tithing plus with no ceiling, that's extremely helpful. And then fifth, 
tithing aids us in our efforts to destroy greed in our hearts. To say, you know, it's going to be tough to live on 90% of our income. And some people, that is tough. And tithing leads you to trust in the promise of God and not to live for sustenance on the stuff of this world. That's a good thing, even when it's tough. So my recommendation, basically all we looked at tonight is to tithe willingly, to start giving at 10% and then expand giving. There's a great explanation in another book that uh, I've, I had in the recommended reading called Rich Christians in an Age of Hunger, where Ron Sider talks about a graduated tithe. Very, very enlightening. Next application, help constructively. Helping the poor is a responsibility of a Christian. We've seen this. We've got a quote from Augustine there. And uh, contrasted with a quote from Ralph Waldo Emerson, do not tell me as a good man did today of my obligation to put all poor men in good situations. Are they my poor? Now, here's the deal. Helping, is, helping the poor is a responsibility of a Christian. I want to be careful here, though, because every cause we see of need doesn't mean we're supposed to help every single one. That can be totally overwhelming. There are problems with AIDS. There are problems with orphans. There are problems with child prostitution and child trafficking. There are problems with water. There are problems with food. There are problems with agriculture. Like we can't do it all. And nor does God put that burden upon us. So we need to be careful. But how are we intentional then about caring for the poor? Helping the poor, responsibility of the Christian, helping the poor is a mark of a church. The mark of a church. We see that in the early church. So be focused. Prioritize the church. It's what we saw, especially help the household of faith. There's a picture in the New Testament of helping the household of faith. Prioritize the church and evangelize the lost. Let that be the platform by which we proclaim the gospel. Be focused. Be wise. We've got to be careful, and we're not going to fly those, through this, but this is that, that Helping Hurts book is about. We should not subsidize the irresponsible. We do not need to rescue lazy people, from the effects of poverty in their lives. At the same time, we've got to be careful to see if there's anything that is leading to that laziness that we can help. We should supplement the responsible. Be focused, be wise, be relational. Give consistent accountability. Give consistent accountability in the context of our giving to those who are in need. We're helping. Give personal attention We don't just throw our money at something and hope that's going to work. Personal attention. Give long-term commitment. This is why even when we talk about short-term missions around here, we want to attach with long-term processes around the world. Be relational. Acknowledge diversity. People are poor for different reasons. People are poor for different reasons. Sinful personal choices, unbiblical worldviews, disasters, lack of technology, inequalities of power. So we must help the poor then in different ways. Like to say, this is what we need to do to help the poor. It's like saying, this is what we need to do to cure sickness. Like it's, it's deeper than that. So we help the poor in different ways. Avoid excuses. I'm not doing anything to hurt the poor, we might say. God desires for his people to help the poor. That's, that's, that's constant throughout Scripture. But I'm just one person. What can I do? The logic that says I can't do everything, so I won't do anything is straight from the pit of hell. I'm only responsible for helping people close to me. We talked about that. Yes, proximity is significant, particularly in the local body of Christ, but physical distance does not necessitate spiritual separation. If so, what will our brothers and sisters, what does that mean for our brothers and sisters in the African bush who are starving without food or water? Help constructively. Save humbly. Save humbly. Saving is all dependent on our hearts 
to say saving is biblical or saving is unbiblical misses the point. Because it could be biblical or unbiblical based on why we're saving. There are good reasons to save. To prepare for future expenditures. To prepare for things that we know that are coming. To provide for expected scenarios. We see that in Proverbs. It's, it's, it's good to look toward that. It's wise to do that. But there are also bad reasons to save. Greed, so you can get more later. Fear. If we're anxious about the future, saving is not the solution. Trusting God is the solution. Worry. A lack of trust in God is not a good reason for saving. Pride. Practice saving in a way that trusts in God. That's what we've got to be careful to make sure that in whatever we do in saving is not stealing our trust from God. And avoid, avoid hoarding in a way that replaces God. That's what hoarding is. It's trusting my resources instead of trusting in God and acquiring more and more. And seeking to provide for future need, we do not neglect dire present need. We cannot neglect dire present need. We've got to be careful when we talk about savings. New Testament, the pattern is more often to give to present need right around you than it is to save for maybe a future day. This is, this is yeah. Is my saving reducing or increasing my dependence on God? Ask these questions when it comes to how much you save. Is my saving reducing or increasing my dependence on God? Is my saving going to help advance the kingdom of God? Would it be wiser to use these funds to advance the kingdom of God amidst present need? Ask those kind of questions when it comes to saving. Is it increasing my dependence on God going to help advance the kingdom? Would it be wiser to advance the kingdom amidst present need? Borrow sparingly. If you're not in debt, avoid it. It causes worry. It denies reality. Avoided, it. it causes worry, denies reality, leads to dishonesty. It creates addiction. More and more and more. It, it doesn't put a check on, on us that is a needed check. It robs God of the opportunity to provide through another means or push us in another direction. Maybe we don't have the money for a reason. It ties up resources that could be used to advance the kingdom. If you're not in debt, avoid it. If you are in debt, pay it. Last one, invest eternally. Realize this, God's return on your investment is better than anyone else's. You know, there, there's that argument, and, and it's not that it's invalid. If you put $10,000 in the market now, then 30, 40 years from now, it'll grow to, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars. So that's why you should do that now. There's another way to look at it, though. I'm not saying that's not the way to do it. But what if you use that $10,000 to, to support that church planter in India? And what if that church planter goes into an unreached people group and has the opportunity maybe in, to lead influential leaders to Christ and people groups start, we see churches multiply across these people groups. And these, these churches start sending missionaries into other people groups around the world. And 30 years later, maybe you don't have hundreds of thousands of dollars to get out of the bank, but you do have thousands upon thousands of souls that are going to heaven. That's, that's a good investment return as well. Maybe a lot better. So think through it from a perspective. Jesus said, you give up everything, your return is a hundredfold. Remember, this world is not our home. This world is not our home. Okay, here we go. Definition of the prosperity gospel. I'm, thank you guys for your patience. We're going to fly through. Here we go. What you got? Prosperity theology. The, the point was to get to this point and be like, of course, it's wrong. So I hope that conclusion is clear. Here's, here's, here's a summary of prosperity theology from Kenneth Hagin. Some call the 
father of the word of faith movement. Jesus, however, came to redeem us from Satan's power and dominion over us. We are to reign as kings in life. That means that we have dominion over our lives. We are to dominate, not to be dominated. Circumstances are not to dominate you. Poverty is not to rule and reign over you. You are to rule and reign over poverty. Disease and sickness are not to rule and reign over you. You are to rule and reign over sickness. We are to reign as kings in life by Christ Jesus in whom we have our redemption. Part of me wants to go in and name a bunch of other names at this point, and I'm not going to. I've got them listed here, but I'm, I'm not going to. But there, there, there are ways that this is being advocated in thriving, successful churches in our culture. Brook Hills, there are ways that this is being advocated in thriving, successful churches in our community. And it is subtle. It is subtly deceptive. Read churches' statements of faith. And when they talk about God's desire for our financial wholeness, beware. The definition of the prosperity gospel. A theology which believes that God's aim is to make believers healthy and wealthy in this life. That's, that's definition. God wants us to enjoy excesses. We enjoy excesses. And we live like king's kids. That's the phrase you'll, you'll see a lot. Here's the deception in the prosperity gospel. The deception, the consistent error is ripping text from context. It ripped text from context. 3 John 2 is one of the main verses that's used. This verse, I pray that all may go well with you. You may be in good health as it goes well with your soul. Does that guarantee, does prayer guarantee health and wealth? This obscure verse in 3 John does not guarantee good health to everyone who trusts in God. Mark 10, that passage is used as a, a popular proof text for prosperity theology. Now we've seen what that text means. Certainly this is not, this is not just saying to Peter, don't worry bro, since you have followed me, you've left everything. I have a condo for you in Jerusalem, a split level for you in suburban Bethany, a cabin in the mountains of Carmel, and a suburb beach house near Caesarea that are waiting for you. You know what Peter had waiting for him? A cross. Upside down. He would die on a cross. That begs the question. It's what Jesus said, along with these things, persecutions. Have those who claim the benefits of this passage paid the price? Are we going to name and claim persecution? By the word of God, I claim suffering for the gospel and beatings for the gospel. You won't hear that in prosperity theology. Psalm 103 the Lord forgives all your iniquity, heals all your diseases. Is this general praise or a guaranteed promise? This is praise to God, not a guaranteed promise. Look at a sweet sister in our faith family this last week who's struggling deeply with cancer, and she has faith. She knows God. She's known for being in the prayer closet with God. That is her reputation. But she is not guaranteed healing from God, not in this life. Yes, in heaven, no question. But God is able to sustain her in such a way that she looks at me and she says, even though I'm going through all this, and even if it doesn't turn out well, I'll be better off. But that God is worthy of praise. There's James 5. We're going to skip over James 5. Just, yeah, go past James 5. There's a lot there. The counterexamples to prosperity theology. 
counterexamples of prosperity, the life and teachings of Jesus. Close the book, go home, like, yes. Not the health and wealth gospel, more like the homeless and wounded gospel. It's got a ring to it. What if God may accomplish higher purposes in our death than in our life? Certainly true in Christ and possibly true in any one of our lives. How about the life and teachings of Paul? Not the prosperity gospel, more like the adversity gospel. He had prosperity before Christ, after Christ, adversity. God may accomplish higher purposes in our sickness than in our health. 2 Corinthians 12, 7, he prays three times, take it away. God doesn't take it away. God doesn't take it away. I mean, maybe Paul needed somebody. Paul lived like the king's kid, man. Name it, claim it, and demand that God will heal you. No, God had a purpose in the healing. I mean, and not healing. God had a purpose to show his strength through Paul. I love Randy Alcorn's quote here. When Paul, this is Paul. When Paul was taken and changed from his filthy Roman dungeon, beheaded at the order of the opulent madman Nero, two representatives of humanity faced off, one of the best and one of the worst. One lived for prosperity on earth, the other didn't. One now lives in prosperity in heaven, the other doesn't. We remember both men for what they truly were, which is why we name our sons Paul and our dogs Nero. That's good. That's good. The danger of the prosperity gospel. Here they are. Number one, it perverts our understanding of wealth. It perverts our understanding of wealth. Is wealth always a sign of God's approval? If so, then what does that say about drug dealers and embezzlers and all the madmen and despots that we see in history? No. Is poverty always a sign of God's disapproval? Look at Christ. Look at Paul. Look at Lazarus and the story of the rich man. Absolutely not. The prosperity gospel perverts our understanding of wealth. Second, it disregards the purpose of wealth. Does God give us more so that we can get more? Or does God give us more so that we can give more? Third, prosperity theology minimizes the dangers of wealth. It minimizes the dangers here. Wealth is not just a blessing from the king. It is also a barrier to the kingdom. It feeds the desire to be rich while scripture forewarns us against the desire to be rich. It's dangerous. Next, it ignores the clear shift in scripture from the Old Testament to the New Testament. Regarding the commands of God, in the Old Testament, yes, there are, sense, there are situations where abundance of promises, there's abundance of promises of material reward for spiritual obedience. But in the New Testament, there is a lack, a glaring lack of promises of material reward for spiritual obedience. You don't see it. Regarding the place of worship, the Old, te- Old Testament temple as a building, New Testament temple as body. Huge difference. Regarding the purpose of blessing. The purpose of God's blessing is that the nations, in the Old Testament, is the nations might come and see God's glory. New Testament, that God's people might go and tell of God's glory. Prosperity theology does not take this change into account. Next, 
Prosperity theology commends selfish luxury over selfless generosity. It explicitly encourages people to indulge in pleasures. Experience all your best life now. I'm not saying names. Not saying names. <laughs> it implicitly leads people to ignore the poor. I've thought about prosperity theology as I've walked through the slums in India where families with three, four, or five children are living in eight-by-foot, 12-foot shacks, and you walk over human feces that litter the ground where lot water is limited and food is scarce and the urban slum continues without, for miles without end and the prosperity theology does not work there. It, it hurts there. Sixth, it appeals, sixth reason why, sixth danger of prosperity theology, it appeals to the desires of the flesh instead of calling people to deny the flesh, which is what we see all over Scripture. Seventh, it encourages people to waste their lives on things that do not last. Matthew 6. Eighth danger, it exalts God's gifts, things we receive from God above God's glory, the treasure we have in God. Any invitation that says come to God and get stuff is not the gospel, even good stuff. It's what Jesus was countering in John 6. He says, I am the bread. Next, it abuses God by making him a means to an end. Oh, this is, if God is a ticket to more stuff, then God is a tool for our man-centered desires and ends. Instead of trusting God for our needs, we start to use God for our wants. Instead of God-centered intercession, prayer becomes man-centered coercion. See how it affects so much else. It's dangerous. It subtly infuses all of Christianity. It's not outside of us. It's inside of us. This is evident in how little we give. Evident in how much we own. Brothers and sisters, in subtle ways, we have drunk this Kool-Aid. And it is, it is killing us. Eleventh, it overlooks the design of suffering. Christians may suffer despite their righteousness. In fact, Christians may suffer because of their righteousness. Suffering is ordained by God for his purposes. In fact, it leads to the last one. It fails, prosperity theology fails to acknowledge the necessity of suffering. Everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, which leads us to a fitting conclusion, the gospel, prosperity, and persecution. We talked about Laodicea and the church at Smyrna. Laodicea, prayer for a wealthy church experiencing prosperity. And, you know, I read a quote from a persecuted Romanian pastor. Listen to what he said. In my experience, this persecuted Romanian pastor, in my experience, 95% of the believers who face the test of persecution pass it, while 95% who face the test of prosperity fail it. God help us. This is based on Revelation 3. God help us to seek our treasure in Christ. God help us to clothe our lives in Christ. That's what he talks about. You think you're rich. No. God help us to fix our eyes on Christ, 
Open your eyes, see clearly. And God, help us not to turn away from Christ. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I'll come in and eat with him and he with me. That's prayer for us right there. Prayer for an impoverished church facing persecution. This is a prayer for our brothers and sisters around the world. Smyrna, God, give them faith that conquers fear. Jesus said, do not fear what you're about to suffer in their poverty and in their persecution. God, give them patience and perseverance to press on. And God, give them endurance to eternal life. The prayer for all of us, the prayer for all of us amidst prosperity, poverty, or persecution. God, may our lives count on earth as our eyes are fixed on heaven. Thank you for listening. You can find more episodes from Secret Church and thousands of other free resources at Radical.net.